0: I wonder if you've um, had an experience like this one. I was driving to the paint store. We were doing a little paint project. Uh, Sherwin-Williams was out of ceiling paint. Nationwide shortage. But there was one store. Of course, it was far out in Aurora, and they had the ceiling paint I needed. So I get in the car, and I decide I'm going to bring Asa and Naomi along, because this is a good idea to bring my two littlest kids along, so I load them in the car, and somewhere around halfway to the paint store, um, my two little kids, two years old, five years old, they decide, "Dad, what, like, there's no donuts in the car, there's no TV in the car, not the donuts and TV, but you know, they're little," and they decide to express to me their displeasure that I had brought them with to the paint store. So I arrive at the paint store and. I go in with the two little ones, and I'm working to minimize the volume of their expressed displeasure. And, you know, it's, a, it's the Sherwin-Williams commercial paint store. So you walk in, and it's a small little lobby and a giant warehouse, and there's like ten paint contractors all standing around waiting for their paint. And I'm trying to keep Asa happy. I let him put the credit card into the little you know, credit card slot, he's a big fan of that, but then he's a big fan of taking it back out, and he's too. he can't read, so it goes in, it comes out, it goes in, it comes out. <laughs> Naomi, meanwhile, has identified the large palette of uh, painter's tape that's right by the door, and she would really like to uh, sort of modify the Sherwin-Williams theme. She doesn't want to paint the world, she wants to tape the world <laughs> right now. And so I pick up Asa, and I'm holding him, and he's a big dude, and the guy drops my two gallons of paint on the counter, and Naomi's behind me, continuing to express her opinions about life, and the guy at the counter asks me a question. He says, you want me to help you take these to the car? (laughs) Now, it's pretty obvious what the answer to this question is supposed to be. Like, we really shouldn't have to ask the question, but you know what I say to this guy? You know what I say? I say, no. I say, no. I got it. And so I pick up the paint, and I turn around, and I start walking towards the door, and Asa decides he doesn't want to be carried. So he does one of those, you know how two-year-olds, and they, like, take their whole body weight, and they know that if they, like, Ugh! And so I'm like stumbling and I almost drop Asa and I, I almost drop the paint. Got to protect the paint, you know. Uh, I almost drop. And another guy graciously, he doesn't bother to ask. He just walks up to me. He grabs the paint. He opens the door. Just stands there with a big smile on his face. <laughs> so I pick Asa back up. pick Naomi back up. I walk out of the car. I get them clipped in. And I leave. I, I, am I the only one here who's been in a situation where... It's, it's abundantly clear that what I need is to ask somebody for help. Or actually, in this instance, I don't even need to ask somebody for help. It's been offered. It's abundant. There's like 10 guys standing around doing nothing, waiting for their paint. And yet still, when I need help, and it's readily available, I still choose to try and do it on my own. I still choose, hey, you need any help with that? No! No! I got it. Look at me. I'm very capable of handling everything that's going on in my life right now. Is anybody willing to raise their hand right now and be like, I have, okay. Okay. So uh, it's, it's interesting because not only do we choose to go it alone instead of asking for help, not only do we do that um, In somewhat inconsequential circumstances, I mean, let's be honest, if I'd have dropped the paint and had fallen over the floor, I mean, that would have been sad, but grand scheme of things, grand scheme of things, not that big of a deal. Don't cry over spilled paint. When Asa would later dump that whole thing of paint onto my hardwood floor, I might have cried. But don't worry, it buffed right out. Everything's fine. But we choose to go it alone when it's inconsequential But it turns out we also choose to go it alone, even when the consequences, even when the stakes are really high. I was looking up some stats on um, mental health. Mental health, the thing about mental health is when you have some brokenness inside of you in the realm of mental health, um, it's not necessarily as visible to the world as physical challenges are. When I've got two kids and two gallons of paint, everybody can look at me and be like, that dude needs some help. If I've got a broken leg, people can look at me and go, that dude needs some help. If I'm struggling internally, I'm, a lot, I'm even more capable of hiding it. Um, it turns out, um, studies have shown that individuals underestimate the likelihood that someone will help them by as much as 50%. Maybe one of the reasons we don't ask for help is because somehow inside, even when it's right there, somehow inside we have this thing that tells us, nobody wants to help you. Even if we know, if we were in that circumstances, we would love to help somebody. But oh, there's this weird internal thing. Maybe nobody will help me. Uh, The Mental Health Foundation, a large research institute around issues of mental health, uh, a survey that they did, a survey commissioned by the Mental Health Foundation, found that a third of women, compared with a quarter of men, had told friends or family about their mental health problem within a month of arising it. So good job, women in the room, you're more likely to share your struggles than men are. Men, you know, we're we're working on it. Um, And then to flip that, they also found more than a third of men, one out of three every man, uh, every man, compared with only a quarter of women, either waited more than two years or chose never to tell friends or family about their problems. Here's why I bring up this strange internal uh, glitch that we have, where even when we know help, uh, even though even when we know we need help, even when that help is readily available, whether it's insignificant circumstances or real, and the stakes are really high, even when that's been offered to us, we still choose not to do it. Here's why I bring that up, and, and I'm glad that we're willing to sort of acknowledge together, um, because we're in a sermon series. The sermon series is called We Are, and we're exploring who... We are as a church. We're going through our church mission statement and we broke it up into four parts. Part one, we talked about last week. David just said, We are a church that exists to glorify God by following Jesus. And thank you, Todd Reisler, for preaching for us last Sunday. Can we give it up for Todd Reisler? Because that was, thank you. I heard from a lot of you guys, I heard from people who are watching online, I heard from people who are here, like, thank you, Todd, for that awesome sermon. And just so you know, I asked Todd somewhat later than I normally would because uh, I ended up flying back to Minnesota to go to my grandfather's funeral. He passed away back in February, but we delayed the funeral. And it was really, really, um, it was really, really good to be back in my hometown, Grand Rapids, Minnesota, um, to be gathered with family uh, and to celebrate my grandpa's life. He was uh, four months shy of turning 100 when he passed away. So he had a good long run and there was much to celebrate. So who are we? We exist to glorify God by following Jesus. We are some Jesus following people. And for the next three Sundays, we're going to talk about, well, what does that Jesus following look like? And today I want to focus in, like David said, on the next big idea. What it looks like is it looks like following Jesus on a shared journey. On a shared journey. And just to be abundantly clear. When I say we exist to glorify God by following Jesus on a shared journey, that journey that I'm talking about is life. Life, oh, it disappeared. I thought there was a thing the thing said. Life is the journey. Oh, whatever. I mixed my slides up. That's great. Um, We are not, not just do I believe that we should, it's good to share the journey. I think God actually designed us that, that knitted into who we really are as human beings. God has designed us to share the journey and life itself, all of life, all of the ups, all of the downs, the big things, the little things, all of life is the journey we are on that we have been designed by God to share. And my, my guess is that this idea, you know, that humans... Uh, uh, thrive, we flourish, we, uh, 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 we, we kind of succeed most in life when we're not isolated and separated from everybody, but when we're together. Uh, I'm guessing that's not going to be a, a new idea to many of us, it, probably to any of us. And so here's my hope. My hope is today, we're going to look up a little bit at scripture. Uh, we're going to look at one specific text from the book of Acts, but we're going to take that small text and we're going to kind of connect it pretty broadly to a bunch of other texts from scripture. And, and here's my hope. My hope is that every one of us would be reminded, and then after we've been reminded, we would be challenged, and that after we've been challenged, we are inspired to lean into this shared life that I think deep down all of us know is what we're designed for and what we want most, but also all of us sometimes choose nonetheless to try and go it alone even when we know we can't. So that's my hope. That's what we're going to do together. If you want, um, you can open your Bibles. If you've got one, uh, you can go to the Bible app. Uh, We've got sermon notes on there. If you go to Events, Centennial Covenant Church, you can find sermon notes there. Uh, You can get your Bible. We're in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, one of the classic texts that talks about what it looks like for the church to be a community who shares the journey together together. Uh, That's where we're going to primarily be, though we're going to jump back to Exodus for a little bit. I might even mention Revelation just to sort of bookend the whole thing, because why not? You know, why not just kind of get through the whole thing? Um, So here we go, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. I'd like to read that to you now. Uh, this, This section is titled, The Fellowship of Believers. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching... And to fellowship. To the breaking of bread. And to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold their property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, this passage, um, just beautiful little text, and I want to talk about three things to just kind of help us uh, put in context this short and pretty dense little chunk of ideals. I want to talk about three things that are going to help us put it in context of what God has been doing in the lives of his people and what these words here might mean for us. So I want to talk about these three things. I want to talk about the location of these words in all of Luke's writing. I want to talk about the meaning of these words for the first audience, some of the things that I think they might have understood when they first heard these words, and then, of course, the function of these words for the church, both then and now, and for as long as the church goes into the future. So first, uh, location. Oftentimes, you know this, but oftentimes when you, when you read a passage of Scripture, maybe you've done this, maybe you've opened your Bible, I hope this is something you do on a regular basis, or maybe you've opened your Bible, um, however you do that, and maybe you read something, thank you, I thought that was funny too, uh, <laughs> Maybe you read something and you find yourself going, I don't know if I really, I don't know if I really get this. Like, is it, is, like, like I read it and I thought, uh, this is what it seems to mean, but is that really what it means? Is that if you've ever read some words in the pages of Scripture and scratched your head afterwards, one of the best things you can do is read a chunk of the words that come before it and read a chunk of the words that come after it because often the meaning of any individual Text is best understood if we read it in its larger context. Everybody say context. There we go. Now all my seminary professors are happy because I had you say context, right? So I want to give you a little bit of the context. Now uh, Luke is the guy who wrote um, the book of Acts, and Luke is unique in a number of ways, but the one that really stands out is Luke, who was a friend and traveling companion to the Apostle Paul who is really present in the life of the early church in a lot of different ways. Luke is the only gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, John, and Luke. He's the only gospel writer who decided to write a two-volume gospel. His gospel, the gospel of Luke, then volume two, the book of Acts, were meant to go together. And because they're meant to go together, what we see is often... What happens in the book of Luke, or sorry, what happens in the book of, I've mixed up my hands, what happens in the book of Acts, we see strong parallels in the gospel of Luke and vice versa. Luke has really done a brilliant job of matching these two things up. Now, here's one of the um, things to note about what Luke does. So this passage I just read, you know, they were all together, they shared their possessions, they prayed, apostles' teaching. Um, it actually shows up in a little chunk of writing in the book of Acts, and three things happen in the chunk. The first thing that happens is God's presence, God's Holy Spirit, comes down, like Jesus said it was, comes down and shows up on the lives of all the believers in Jerusalem. It's called the day of Pentecost, the day when God's Spirit came down and was present on all God's people. And this incredible thing happened where somehow everybody standing there saw something that looked like a tongue of fire. That's the word Luke chooses to use. It looked like a tongue of fire. Some sort of brightness, some sort of light sits on all the believers' heads. And then they all start speaking to one another so that everybody there in Jerusalem, even though they spoke different languages, they all understood one another. It's this incredible thing. And right after that, Peter preaches a sermon the first sermon of the church. And it's just this incredible, powerful sermon that is, in a way, sort of the beginning of the church. And right after, the Holy Spirit comes down in, in a powerful way, and then Peter preaches a sermon, and many people are like, yes, I want to be a Jesus follower, sign me up. Right after that, we get this little chunk that describes what it was like in the life of the church. So in a sense, Luke opens his book of Acts telling us about the birth of the early church. And you know what Luke opens his beginning of his gospel with? With a pretty extensive telling about the birth of Jesus when he came to earth. And this parallel is really interesting because it kind of says, so if Luke opens both his gospel and acts with a birth narrative, the birth of Jesus himself, God on earth, and then the birth of the church, well, in a sense, we could conclude that what Luke is saying is the church is Jesus's rebirth here on earth. That Jesus who lived as God himself on earth, but then after his death and resurrection, he left the earth and he rose up into heaven. When God came down on the church in the beginning, that was God saying, okay, you had me in the flesh as Jesus, but now the whole world has me in the community of God's People. Why is it that we are designed to share the journey? What should inspire us? Well, one, because we know when we share the journey as the church, we are God's presence born onto this earth. So that our sharing of the journey is how people can know the presence of God on earth. We share the journey because the church is the rebirth of Jesus here on earth. Um, What did this text mean to the early people? So again, we've got Pentecost, tongues of fire, people speaking in different languages, crazy thing. Everybody's looking at it and they're in wonder. Uh, And then we get this description. The church shares their scripture, community, generosity, prayer. um, And this kind of all goes together. How would the early church have sort of heard and understood this chunk of teaching? Well, what I want to do is highlight um, yet another sort of birth story, that I think everybody familiar with the Jewish scriptures at that time would have immediately been like, oh my gosh, it's just like this. And this other birth story is from way back in the book of Exodus. See, God has been giving birth to his people. God has been bringing life to his people time and time again throughout the years. God's been trying to tell people, hey, I made you. For my abundant life, I made you so that you could know me and serve me and live life the way I designed. That's what I made you for. And God's been trying to tell us this over and over. So we see these sort of echoes throughout Scripture of the same message. One of the earliest uh, birth stories is when God has just rescued his people from Egypt. And now he's gathered them at the the base of Mount Sinai. And he's going to make with them a covenant. And a covenant is a promised relationship. And it's interesting because at that time, you may remember this, if you've read the book of Exodus, if you've watched Charlton Heston play Moses in, in uh, you know, a long time ago when that was, um, you may remember Moses climbs up to the top of Mount Sinai and he speaks with God and God gives Moses the law. The law is a description of God's promised relationship with his people and how God wants his people to live in relationship with them. And something really interesting happens after Moses goes up on the mountain and speaks with God and comes back down. You can read about it in Exodus chapter 34, beginning in verse 29. Uh, This is what happens after Moses comes down from Sinai with the law. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant... Because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant. And they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them. So Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him and he spoke to them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near him and he gave them all the commandments the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. So wait a minute, wait a minute. In one of the first instances where God sort of gives birth to his people, Israel, at Mount Sinai, in one of the first instances, it happens where Moses goes up on a mountain, and when he comes down, there's this strange radiance, this light, this brightness on his face that people see it, and they're like, whoa! And then the text emphasizes Moses speaks the words of God on behalf of God to the people. And now, at the rebirth of the church in the book of Acts, what do we get? Instead of one person going up on a mountain, God Himself comes down with a sort of radiance. Luke calls it tongues of fire, but it's clearly something bright and light. And it doesn't sit on one person's head, it sits on the head of every single Jesus follower who was gathered there. And then you know what they all do? They all speak words so that every person from every language every tongue present can understand the words of God. In Pentecost at the beginning of the church everyone receives a radiance from God and everyone speaks on behalf of God. This is the this is the incredible experience that led people like the apostle Peter to refer to all of God's people as a royal priesthood. Royal priesthood is a word that used to be applied to only a few people, and then Peter applies it to everybody in the church. It's the same thing that led Martin Luther and the early reformers to talk about the priesthood of all believers. If Moses was the first priest, he was the only guy who could go up and speak to God and then come down and share God's presence with others, now... The moment the church is reborn, everybody is able to have God's presence sit upon them. Everyone is able to speak words on behalf of God. Everyone is able to be God's presence to others in our world. In a sense, what Moses, I preach it all believers, go to the next slide. What Moses did for Israel, we all do for the church. God would like all of us to be a sort of Moses who can speak God's words to anybody and everybody we come across in our lives. So why is it that we need to share the journey? Because God has called us into community so that we might be that radiance in a world that we know is too often filled with darkness. Third thing what's the function of this text uh, in the early church? We kind of just set the context a lot. We looked way back to Exodus. Uh, we looked, you know, compared it with the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. So let's really get specific now that we've sort of seen what's happening in the life of the church. What does this really do? So the text said that the early church was characterized by four things. Their devotion to Scripture, community, generosity, and prayer. Scripture, uh, it said, the apostles' teaching, uh, because they didn't, the apostles hadn't written down all the things that we have written down and we call Scripture. They had the Hebrew Scriptures, which they continued to teach and preach from, but then they had the message of Jesus, which they spoke. So they committed themselves to the teaching and the learning of Scripture. They committed themselves to community. There was an intimate, a relational connection. There was a fellowship that permeated everything they did. They committed themselves to generosity. It it says the breaking of bread, which which meant both uh, sharing communion, as we call it, right? Eating a little bit of bread, drinking uh, some juice or wine from a cup. But it also meant any time the early church shared communion, it was often in the context of a shared meal that was used to feed people who otherwise didn't have food to eat, that was used to uh, distribute possessions in a way equitably to care for those who are in need. So breaking bread was both an act of worship, and it was an act of worship that was an act of generosity to the community. And then, of course, they were characterized by prayer. But this description of the early church, this description of how people behaved, what marked their community when God came down on them, wasn't meant just to be something nice that some people did long ago. As one uh, scholar says it, uh, these, these items, they were an itemized list of the criteria by which the church in any age would both preserve and manifest its continuity with the apostles. If Jesus came and birthed his church with the purpose of being God's presence to the earth, then this short list is a short and powerful way to say anywhere these four things are happening, anywhere these are the characteristics of community, this is where we know God's church is alive and active. If these four things are present with those in the room, if these four things are present in the homes you're gathered in, if these four things are present in any gathering of people, that is the church. It doesn't need to be connected to a building for it to be the church. It doesn't need to be connected to you know an organization like Centennial to be the church. Wherever these four things are present, that is the church where God is present on earth. And the really powerful thing is when you read through that whole text and this beautiful description of the church at its best. I know, I know, we fall short sometimes. They fell short sometimes. We fall short sometimes. But the church at its best, all of these markers, these identifiers of the church, they were all understood to be community activities. The teaching was not that I should go as an individual and I should go read my Bible by, this, by myself, and I should go be generous by myself, and I should go be in community by myself, and I should go pray by myself. The idea was that the community of Jesus followers would be characterized in a shared expression of these core activities. Which brings us, as always, to the most critical part of any sermon You know, my my hope in explaining the text and the context and giving some ideas, and, and you know, my desire is just to kind of get your wheels turning and hopefully plant some ideas in your brain that might stick. But my real hope is not just that neat ideas or information sticks with you, but my hope is that all of us would walk out these doors and say, What's my move? What's your move going to be? God wants us not just to know His Word, but to apply His Word, not just to know Jesus, but to follow Jesus. So here's the question. If the church is characterized by a shared journey, if you're designed to share the journey, and we know that the church sharing the journey should look like a devotion to scripture, a devotion to community, a devotion to generosity, and a devotion to prayer, if we know that, and you know, I mean, you know a lot of us have been doing this for a while, and if, if our lives are already looking like that, then the thing we need to do is we need to pause like we need to do on a regular basis. We just need to ask ourselves, maybe for the first time, maybe for the hundredth time, maybe we we need to ask ourselves, how are you, how am I participating in the shared journey? I acknowledged last week that coming off my sabbatical, I had a pretty strong realization that when I thought about what it meant to be a prayerful person, I had to kind of realize, I spent a lot of time thinking about that over my sabbatical, and I had to realize I thought of that far too much as an individual activity. I'd sort of isolated my prayer life from a lot of other people in my life around me. So let's just take a minute and consider these four things and ask, how are you participating? How are you enacting? How are you living out this shared journey? And let's just start with the basics. What is your community of faith? How are you engaging intentionally in a community of faith? Now you're here, you're sitting in a room with other people, you're watching online with other people, in the very least you are connected to a community of faith, but I think you'd agree with me that sitting next to some people in this room is not really the pinnacle of intimate fellowship. It's not really the the highest point of a strongly connected relationship. I think it's good. I think it's a strong part of it. But we know that we could walk in the doors a couple minutes late, sit down, you know, the moment the pastor says amen at the end, like, get up, back out. I mean, you know, there's our welcome team. They'll try to, like, stop you in the welcome center, but you could be fast. You know, you might, you might get past them. On staff meetings on Tuesdays, sometimes we're like, oh, there was a new person, but man, they got out so fast, we couldn't even say hi to them. Um... How are you participating in this shared journey by having unintentional? The early church was characterized by an intimate fellowship. How is your faith journey shared intimately in community? Second, they devoted themselves to Scripture. How is your Scripture reading, how is your engagement with, your prayer of, your memorization, your discussion, how is your engagement with Scripture a Community activity. We've got a great gift. We can all have our own Bible. We carry it with it on our phone anywhere we go. This is new and rare in the broad history of the church. It's a great gift, but the danger is reading Scripture can become something we only do on our own. And again, we engage it together here, but how are you engaging it in community in your lives? They were marked by a generosity how are you sharing generously with the church community and through the church community out into the broader world? Are you intentionally sharing financially on this journey that we're on together? You may well have heard the, sta- the biblical standard that often gets taught is to give 10%. From the Old Testament, it was called the tithe, and tithe just means a tenth, so People are like, oh, I tithe 12%. Well, that's nice, but actually tithe just means 10%. That's what the word means. But here's what I'd encourage you to consider. I know, I guess I don't know. I don't have any, I don't know any specific numbers about how much people give, but um, you kind of look across it and and, and I know enough people well enough to say, I'm pretty confident there's a big chunk of people in this church who give 10% of their finances every month before it even hits the bank. They're giving 10% off the top of everything they earn. We do that, because we want to share financially in this journey. I just, here's, my, here's my encouragement. If you've not ever given a percentage off the top consistently to the church, and not just to the church, but to the church so that it's through the church, uh, benefiting the community around us, I'd encourage you to consider, would you begin participating with generosity in the shared life of this church? And last, but certainly not least, They were devoted to prayer. Prayer, I think, is the foundation of all acts of service that we do. If you were to serve in the student ministry and be a small group leader for some of our middle school or high school students, if you were to serve in the nursery and hold little babies, if you were to serve with uh, Love, Inc. or North Littleton Promise, connect with some of the work of our global or local missions teams, if you were to do any of that service, that would all be awesome expressions of God's church to the world, and I think Doing it as a person whose prayer life is devoted to community prayer, prayer with others and for others, that is the foundation for all works of service. And here's the really good news. The book of Acts and a number of other places makes it clear that when we do this, and when we do it because of God's prompting in our lives... We don't find ourselves feeling more guilt or shame, like I really should do this, and I guess it's good that I do it because I know I should. But there's a word that gets associated with God's people living God's ways, and it gets associated time and time and time again throughout Scripture. That word is joy. The early church was characterized by joy. Just to remind you, it said, they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. How are you participating in the shared journey? And however you're doing it, if you ever have that internal struggle of like, oh, am I doing this because I really think God's calling me? Or is it some weird sense of like burden, guilt, shame? Here's a good question to ask yourself. Am I joyful in sharing this journey? Because God doesn't just want to invite you to the shared journey. He wants to give you his joy as you share that journey with others. I was thinking about uh, stories that kind of capture um, this image, this idea that we're designed to do it together. And uh, if you know me, you know that I, um, I'm really, really into and I really like to, to read about and talk about and watch too many YouTube videos about. Uh, I'm really into Something new just about every other week, uh, and this past couple weeks, I've gotten really into a musician whose name is John Baptiste. Anybody here familiar with jazz? Okay, yeah, yeah, John Baptiste. Oh my goodness! So uh, I've been listening to John Baptiste, and I watched a couple of videos that he did. Uh, these sort of history of jazz music, uh, and he like blends genres like crazy. Uh, actually, I think do I have a picture of John Baptiste? Okay. Oh, I cropped it weird. That's John on the right. Um, he's a guy whose style might just exude joy. But John Baptiste was born in New Orleans, and his family is a historic New Orleans family, generation after generation of musicians. Uh, he started playing when he was 14. And he tells this story. He says, you know, when he thinks about music, oftentimes the way music is created in our modern world is that a musician goes into a room and the room has like soundproof padding and microphones. And then there's other people in a different room next to giant mixing boards. And one by one, musicians go into this room and they, and they record and then somebody else mixes them all together. And then it gets piped out around the world in magical waves of things called wireless and technology, right? And John, while he does that and recording can be beautiful and wonderful, he contrasts What often, you know, maybe that's a little hyperbole, but what often is the case of music today, he contrasts it with a story that was passed down from his family in New Orleans. And he shares about how long before emancipation in the United States, when there were many enslaved people in New Orleans, um, many of the enslaved people were allowed, in some places, they were allowed one day a week to gather in... A central space in the city. In New Orleans, it's a place called Congo Square. I've not been there, this is John Baptiste's story. And he says, In Congo Square, on Sundays, enslaved people were allowed to gather together. And you know what they did when they gathered together? They made music. They echoed the drum circles of their ancestors from the African continent. They shared their lives through expressions of music as a way to bring hope and light in an otherwise brutalized and terrible experience that they were missed in. They used music as a way to bring people together and give hope where there is otherwise darkness. John and many other people refer to this history where music is more than just a song we listen to, but it's a force that can connect people. He likes to refer to it as social music. Music not done individually separate in a sound booth somewhere, but music where, in its very performance, brings people together, and Baptiste is famous for putting on a concert, and at the end of the concert, he literally walks off stage with the band and invites, he was doing a concert at like some big fancy New York venue, and he just said, everybody out in the street. And he just brought the concert out in the street and a dance party erupted in downtown New York with anybody and everybody present. And he says that is what music is designed to do. It's designed to remind us that we are better when we're together. That in our very bones, we were designed to share this journey called life. Worship team, come on back up and would you guys pray with me? God, thank you that you have put us right here in an easy, natural place where we can lean into, engage, find close connections in a community of faith. God, whatever it is that I I believe, just like to the early church, you spoke to and through each person there, I believe you can speak to and through each one of us in this room right now. God, Help us right now, even right now, in our hearts, in our minds, help us to know how can we more fully share this journey called life? Do we need to lean into relationships somewhere? Do we need to lean into reading scripture with other people? Do we need to lean into generosity, sharing with others out of the goods you've given us? Do we need to lean into prayer, making it the foundation, the joyful starting place of all that we do? Pray, God, that you would be the one who prompts each of us. You would be the one who prompts us as a community with the specific ways we can share together this journey we're on, a journey of following you, our God, Jesus. Amen.